It's only three days after Thanksgiving. It's always a little bit strange to go right into the season of Advent, but I think in this crazy 2020 year, people are ready. I don't know about you, but we've been noticing neighbors for the last 10, 14 days putting up their Christmas trees and lighting them because you know what? Nobody's going to apologize this year for putting up their Christmas trees early. I, I caught my neighbor putting out his nativity scene in his front yard, and he was like, I'm not plugging it in until Friday. And I said, Henry, you go for it. Like, it's 2020, plug it in. Um, people are ready. But still, I, I like to gently poke at something I hear very often, particularly when it is shared within the community of faith by followers of Jesus. This is what I'd like to gently poke at. People say, I'm just starting to get into the Christmas spirit. And we all know what they mean by that. They don't mean anything harmful. They mean I'm ready for the barrage of lights and decorations and, uh, and gift shopping and songs in the car, on the radio. We all get that. But the concern is that while enjoying those very good things, it's too easy to entirely miss the foundational reason for our celebration. Instead of getting into the Christmas spirit, can I ask you whether the spirit of Christ is filling you? Instead of getting into the Christmas spirit, can I ask if the spirit of Christ is pointing you to more eagerly anticipate the coming again of the Messiah? Each year we talk about the meaning of the word Advent. John Chung already alluded to this early on as he began our worship service. Advent means coming or arrival. The point of these four weeks leading up to Christmas is not to get your shopping done in time. Advent, uh, Jesus' first advent happened in Bethlehem when he was born to Mary in humble surroundings. And the wonder of it all is that God became man to live a perfectly human and sinless life that we couldn't live and to die a perfect substitute death to defeat sin and death in order to save his people. That's first advent Christmas foundation. Jesus' second advent will be glorious and public, and he'll come to complete all of God's salvation plan. We always keep these advents together during the season. Uh, Lion and the Lamb, we'll allude to uh, from Scripture, we sung earlier, keeps those two realities together. So what's the point of the season? It's to get a sense of Israel's anticipation for all those centuries of the coming Messiah. And the point of the season is to sharpen our own anticipation for the second advent for Christ's return. This year, we're pulling out an old series graphic. If you're at home, this full screen will show you, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We'll sing that hymn um, in coming Sundays. Um, it's the same graphic. It's the same title with different scripture texts this year. We will look at, in this Advent series, four Old Testament texts that will increasingly get us closer to Bethlehem. And we'll start with the first book of the Bible, Genesis. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of Scripture? 
at home as well, I'd encourage you. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Genesis 49, starting in verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. This is God's word. Let's pray. According to your wisdom and power, Lord God, you enable these words to come alive, to come to fulfillment. And still we await consummation as we stand between Jesus' first coming and his second. Increase our longing for his advent that we might worship the king and recognize him to be the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. We start with um, old promises and prophecies by taking a a close look at Genesis, uh, not just chapter 49, but when we jump into the um, book of Genesis in chapter 49, which is next to last chapter, a lot of drama has just wrapped up. I'm going to try to summarize about 20 chapters of Genesis in seven or eight sentences uh, to give you a little bit of the context for how we get to these words from Jacob, the dad, to one of his sons um, in these uh, scripture texts, uh, the verses that I read. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, is living in the land of Canaan and he has 12 sons and an incredibly dysfunctional family. Number 11 is Joseph who is despised by his older brothers who decide to kill him but then change their mind because they figure they can make a buck and he ends up as a slave in Egypt where a governor's wife hits on him, but when Joseph says, "Uh uh-uh, girl, she takes it personally, claims that he attacked her, and he gets thrown in prison. He rots there for three years until his dream interpreting skills land him an interview with Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and Joseph nails it by interpreting Pharaoh's dream. Joseph's put in charge of the whole land, and He proves himself to be like this Amazon.com logistics genius and manages seven years of incredibly abundant harvests to prepare for seven years of devastating famine. Because the famine hits the entire region, Joseph's estranged brothers up in Canaan travel down to Egypt to buy grain so they don't starve. They don't realize it's Joseph until one day at dinner he says, surprise, in Hebrew, And they're shocked and afraid that he will have revenge on them and kill them. But Joseph forgives 
And his whole family ends up moving down to Egypt and joining him for a long season. That's as in a nutshell as I can manage. 20 chapters of Genesis. That brings us to Genesis chapter 49. Old Jacob is about to die. So he brings his sons in to share a unique word which, with each of them. Some words are rebukes, most are blessings, but they're all prophetic promises which God will bring about in the lives of these sons and their descendants. You would expect the richest blessing to go to Joseph, still the favored son, number 11, of the favored wife, Rachel. But instead, the richest blessing goes to son number four, who's Judah. Judah's name is related to the Hebrew word for praise, but all of what we know of Judah's early life is far from praiseworthy. He's actually the brother who thinks up the plan to make some money by selling the the brother, Joseph, to the slave traders. And all of Genesis 38, he has his own chapter of the Bible, highlights the depth of his sinful heart, Judah. It's pretty ugly. But the next time Judah's highlighted in chapter 44, it's a whole different story. Judah offers himself as a prisoner in the place of his youngest brother, Benjamin. And the way we could put this is, Judah offers to be a substitute to accomplish salvation, to rescue his little brother. Here are the details of Jacob's prophetic blessing upon Judah, which is what I read. Judah will experience four things. He'll experience the praise of his brothers. He'll experience victory over his enemies. Thirdly, rule over the nations. And fourthly, incredibly abundant prosperity. You could come up with different ways to summarize. I just came up with four, pretty much covering those verses. Uh, Real briefly on each of these, praise from his brothers is pretty ironic because the whole reason Joseph, brother number 11, was hated and then sold to the slave traders was because Joseph had this dream and he shared it with his brothers, unwise, that they were going to bow down to him one day, which they did. Because when they came to buy grain in Egypt, he was in charge. It's ironic that Judah is told he's going to experience this. Victory will come over enemies because the line of kings will come, starting with David, will come through the descendants of Judah. And Judah is called a lion by his dad in verse 9. All other creatures bow down to the lion because of his power. Who dares to rouse a lion? Judah is the first lion king. It's in the Bible. But then in verse 10, Jacob's prophecies get real interesting. He says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. The it in that sentence refers to the scepter or the staff, which are symbols of rule and power. It. Um. And uh, Ezekiel the prophet says something very similar. Before the fall of Jerusalem, 
In chapter 21, verse 27, Ezekiel says, the crown for the king, the crown will not be restored until he to whom it rightfully belongs shall come to him, I will give it. Who is he? Who is this king, this descendant of Judah to whom rule and power and crown rightfully belong? Who is this coming king? He is Messiah. The heart of Jacob's prophecy, his blessing upon son number four, is that through Judah, Messiah, the lion king, will one day come. The anticipation of Israel we see here in Genesis 49, the first book of the Bible. Here's what's so striking. Israel's not even a nation yet. She's just a big family with no home, no land, no ruler. But, but I think that can help us appreciate Genesis 49 and this dad's promise to one of his sons as Advent begins in this crazy, most unique year, 2020. Israel's context, her, her simplicity, and what is to come. Because for Jacob and his sons and their families, despite this amazing promise, and there are other very good promises to some of the other sons, to this big family, severe trial is coming. Starting with 400 years of slavery where they are right now in Egypt. That kicks off when the current Pharaoh, whom Joseph served so ably, passes on the throne, and the next one doesn't really know, remember, what happened. And after that, there will be 40 years of wandering in the desert. And after that, there will be cycles of, yes, prosperity and freedom, but more than that, foreign oppression in the book of Judges, a downward spiral. And after that, there will be hundreds of years of a few good kings but a whole lot of bad kings who lead the people of God astray in worshiping false gods. And after that, there will be complete destruction of Jerusalem, loss of homeland, exile to a pagan country for two generations. God knows all of that will happen, but none of that waters down or weakens this promise made by Jacob to one of his sons, that a ruler will come and rule not only over his own people, but over all the nations. This promise has worldwide cosmic dimensions. So why would we think, in light of Israel's context, and the the trials that will follow this marvelous promise of good things, why would we think that In the year 2020, we are all that unique in our trials. A year of political instability and racial tensions and a global pandemic that has killed, I believe, a couple hundred thousand people worldwide and fast counting. Why would we think that the promises of God are any less true in the year 2020, because of what's going on around us 
in light of what happened to Israel. Even if this is objectively the worst year of your life, and for some of you young people, you could rightly say that. Even if you were to say that, in the midst of trials and sufferings and uncertainties and loss of opportunity and perhaps even death, could we not say in light of history, it's just one year and not hundreds of years, one after the other, with no light at the end of the tunnel, as Israel could easily have said. This is the perspective that we're blessed with today. To look back on the first advent of Messiah, his first coming, as the fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy to Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10, and to look forward to the day that the Bible even more boldly and clearly promises will come when this same Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the King of Kings, returns, comes, advents in glory, publicly, visibly, and finally and fully vanquishes sin and every reason for crying or mourning or tears and even death itself. It leads us, secondly, to new fulfillment. Old promises and prophecies, new fulfillment. There's one more set of images to describe the blessing that'll come through Judah's ultimate descendant, verses 11 and 12. Describe abundance, prosperity. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. If you tie your donkey or your dog or your horse to a vine, it probably means that you, you tore off that vine from the plant and you're using it as a leash. And it's not really going to work that well. It's going to dry up. It's going to get brittle. And you're going to need another one. It's a waste. That vine could have produced you more harvests of your crops. And if you keep doing that, you're going to kill the plant. But if you've got more grapes than you could process, eat, drink, make into wine... Vines become single-use conveniences. Grab another one. There's more behind it. Abundance, prosperity. Same idea continues. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. This is not wash as in laundry, cleaning, but wash as in saturate. If you get in that wine press and squish those grapes with your feet, there will be so many, the juice will be flowing everywhere that you will be saturated. Your clothes will be dripping, washed with grape juice, a crazy abundant harvest. And then last a set of images, his eyes will be darker than wine, perhaps from drinking so much, his teeth whiter than milk perhaps from drinking all this fresh, uh, uh, fresh milk from animals that are prospering. Uh, in an agricultural society, this is living the dream. Abundance. You know, one of the dangers of living in a context where there is so much abundance and comfort is losing sight of the real dream. We're too easily satisfied. And it's not unrelated that Christianity is fastest growing in Africa and Asia 
in Latin and South America, Eastern and the Southern hemispheres, and not so much in the Northern and the Western hemispheres where prosperity and wealth are much more likely. This picture, these images of abundance and prosperity, this promise would wow so much more powerfully in other parts of the world today than it does here. Most Bergen County residents think hunger is that dinner is not going to be ready for another hour. That's far from the reality that World Vision paints. According to World Vision, 8.9% of the world's population, around 690 million people, go to bed every night with an empty stomach. That number has been steadily rising since 2014. In an era of economic prosperity and progress and growth, World Vision estimates that between 83 million and 132 million more people will go hungry because of this pandemic. What does this promise of Messiah bring the promise of no more hunger, of total satisfaction. That message resonates so much more loudly in other parts of the world than it does here. Isn't that true? These Genesis 49 promises say that the Lion of Judah will have the obedience of nations. But how do nations relate to each other today? There's war or the constant threat of war there's slavery, there's genocide, there's racial and nationalistic hatred, there is economic oppression. But when the Lion of Judah comes, he to whom rightful rule belongs, he will make all things right on behalf of his people who trust in him. No one else but those who trust in the Lion of Judah will want what he promises, which is true shalom, life as it has always supposed to be, divine blessing and peace. If all this sounds a little bit like the prosperity gospel, please understand that the, the Bible does promise prosperity far beyond what we could ask or imagine. God does desire for you to have greatest treasure, for you to abundantly feast, for you to experience, this is the picture from the Old Testament, new wine flowing from the hills, abundance and comfort in streets of gold. Revelation, the very end of the book, of the, uh, end of the Bible, paints a picture for us. It, it's just that the prosperity gospel misses the fundamental reality that suffering comes before glory, death comes before new life. It places, the prosperity gospel does, too much priority on material things, gifts, rather than the giver himself, the creator. The prosperity gospel wrongly aims at the here and now when the Bible points us ahead to the end of history, to the second advent of Jesus, when being in the presence of our king and creator will bring perfect satisfaction of every God-designed desire. We close with this picture from the end of history. Revelation chapter five. John the apostle says this. 
I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and at seven seals, there he is, Lion King. But then the very next verse, the very next verse describes the same being very differently. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain sacrificed, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And we have to pause quickly and say, what's going on? Did John the Apostle have double vision? Is he having a hallucination? Does he even know what he's seeing? Which animal is it? Because any three-year-old can tell the difference between a mighty lion who roars and a meek lion a meek lamb that baas. Which is it? Scripture tells us he is both lion and lamb. This is why Advent connects directly to Good Friday and the cross. Why the Christmas spirit means dying to self and following a suffering servant savior. This is why The one who created man and woman became man himself. And this king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like Joseph, Genesis. Like Joseph, the Messiah would be betrayed by his brothers. The great lion sacrificed like a lamb, but then raised up by God's power to save even those who betrayed him, who turned against him, not talking about Judas. That is the glory of Christmas. So aim your longing, not at gifts under the tree, not at the right songs to come on when you're in the car, but at nothing less than the glorious second advent of the Lion of Judah and his blessings will flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Let's sing. Let's pray. Lord, this is why we can sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Lord, when we sing that in weeks to come, Yes, we may have as the backdrop good things that you enable us to appreciate, friendship, family, perhaps modest feasting together, perhaps exchanging gifts and seeing lights and decorations that are festive, but do not allow us, by your Holy Spirit, do not allow us to miss, to fail to centrally gaze upon the lion who is also the lamb, the mighty king who is also the one sacrificed that we might be rescued. 
saved from sin and death. Holy Spirit, enable us to connect Bethlehem to Calvary and whet our appetites for that second advent of Jesus when he comes in glory.